want to advertise on Narrative Live, well, we have partnered with AdvertiseCast to handle our advertising and sponsorship requests. They're great to work with, and they'll help you advertise on our show. Please email sales at advertisecast.com or visit our show notes page. You'll find that in your podcast player where we describe what's on this week's show. everyone, welcome to Narrative Live. We have a very exciting show today, and we're starting off with a conversation with Gene Guerrero, who wrote a fantastic book about Stephen Miller. Uh, it's called Hatemonger, and she joins us from San Diego. Hi, Gene. how are you? Hi, great to be here. I'm good, thank you. So it's, a, it's an interesting subject. He certainly is one of the most controversial figures in the White House. He's been the longest lasting, as far as I can tell, other than the immediate family. Uh, why Stephen Miller? Why did you write a book about him? Well, I had been covering the impact of his policies from the busiest border crossing in the United States, the San Diego-Tijuana border crossing. And I, particularly during the family separation policy, I began to really wonder about the person who was designing these policies. You know, I kept hearing this narrative out of the White House that the immigration policies, including the family separation policy, were about law and order, about national security, that they were only targeting people who had broken the law. But I, you know, knew from my experience reporting on the ground that a majority of these people were families coming from Central America, uh, from various countries in Africa, who were seeking asylum, and in most cases seeking asylum legally, you know, presenting at ports of entry and being systematically separated from their children anyway, despite having no criminal records and having broken no laws. And for me, that raised the question, well, if this is not about law and order, which clearly it is not, then what is it about? And mm -hmm. I felt like to answer that question, I had to, I had to investigate the, the life story of Stephen Miller, the man who was shaping these policies and trying to understand his motivations. It does feel to me like that's not the only case where the motivations are being obscured for the same reasons. It seems to me like even with coronavirus, with the, um, you know, there has certainly been consideration as to who is getting the virus and who is getting killed uh, or dying from the virus because of their socioeconomic situation or, or who, who knows, various other factors. That has been a consideration for the White House. And again, it leads you to the idea that the core underbelly of this White House is really about white nationalism. That seems to be the thing that drives almost everything other than maybe the Middle East, um, which both of those converge sort of in Stephen Miller. Now, is he, is he, does he believe what, what he's doing or is he uh, you know, executing a policy of convenience for, his, for some other masters? Well, I think in the case of many people in the White House, it is about, you know, politics and power. Um, I think that Stephen Miller is one of the rare exceptions who is a true fanatic, a true ideologue. And in the book, I trace this back to his childhood. You know, he was radicalized at a very young age in these white supremacist ideas, particularly the white supremacist conspiracy theory of white genocide or, or the great replacement theory, that white people are being systematically replaced by brown and black people, that brown and black people pose an existential threat to Western civilization as we know it, because according to these white supremacists, brown and black people are incompatible with, with the values of, of Western civilization, which is completely crazy and, and ahistorical. But, you know, Stephen Miller at a very young age 
be, became indoctrinated in these ideas. You know, he was he was going to white nationalist and white supremacist websites. He was being mentored by a man named David Horowitz, who wrote books about how everything that we hold dear in society is is a result of white men. You know, things like freedom and equality, which completely ignores the role, the central role of people of color in things like the civil rights movement. But Stephen Miller, even though he is Jewish, he, he comes from a family of refugees who came here fleeing persecution in Eastern Europe. For some reason, he, from a very young age, began to identify with, with whiteness. And over the years, it, it perhaps started out as simply a way of getting attention and, and feeling empowered at a time when his family had lost a lot of money. You know, they, they, they'd had to move from a very rich part of Santa Monica, California to a slightly less uh, rich part. And this is when he starts to become radicalized. And at first, you know, maybe it was about a sense of power, but over time he begins to invest so much in this ideology and it provides him with a path to power that it eventually becomes inseparable from his identity. And I really think that every action that he's taking in the White House, where he's systematically targeting communities of color, primarily families, you know, refugees and asylum seekers, it is because he believes uh, that he is somehow saving the country by harming these communities. It's quite something um, to believe that in, in any event, but just to then have the uh, access to power to execute this kind of things. Uh, David Horowitz, you mentioned, is an interesting character that shows up in his life, and and you write about him in your book. Who is a an interesting guy because he's got connections that seem to go back to sort of Israel and and Sheldon Adelson and and a whole group of sort of fringe right wing sort of Middle East focused people. Um, and he's been the godfather to a lot of right wing figures in the United States, whether it's uh, and. Um, Coulter or 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 even Stephen Miller, there's a you know there's a fairly large group of them, and I think there he actually has a, a fellowship of some sort, doesn't he? Where he hands up uh, scholarships to people, and and it seems like that there's an element of um, you call it radicalization, but it seems like maybe outside forces are trying to radicalize individuals in this country. Do you think that's true? Absolutely. I mean, I don't know kind of who's behind David Horowitz. I, I do know that he. You know, he he's done he's done a lot more than than he's been given credit for as far as radicalizing conservatives across this country, um, and and one of the ways that he did it is because he is a former Marxist who mm. taught he taught cons young conservative white men like Stephen Miller the the tools of the civil rights movement to attack the civil rights movement. So he, mm -hmm. he taught them to use the language of the left against the left, you know. Um, What's an example of that? So casting young, casting white conservatives as victims of discrimination uh, mm -hmm. or, or, or as, 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 as victimized minorities right. um, and calling, you know, calling people of color the real racists mm -hmm. um, or, or the real oppressors. And so just completely inverting the language of the civil rights movement. And he taught Stephen Miller how to do this at a very young age, taught him that systemic racism against people of color is a figment of your of the left's imagination that the only real racism in society is racism against white men he calls anti-white racism the most dangerous social problem in america today so these are the ideas that that shaped stephen miller's ideology and as much as he 
likes to say that his policies have nothing to do with race when you connect the dots between the policies and his rhetoric and and the sources that he's pulling it from and the ideologies that are informing his decisions you you realize that this has everything to do with race and that he is you know an extremist in the white house who who's who's shaping policy based on on white supremacy and uh how does it make you feel because you grew up not far away from him in california you sort of come from the same era as uh, I think, and and which is the '90s, a little bit of my era too. So, uh, you know, it, it's curious to me that he came from California. Frankly, it seems like an odd place for an extremist to come from, but then it's also a place where there is a lot of diversity. And uh, I wonder how how it makes you feel uh, confronting um, the you know the truth behind Stephen Miller. Well, that's a great question. One of the reasons I was attracted to the story of Stephen Miller is because I. As you say, I grew up in Southern California at the same time period as him. I'm just a couple of years younger than him, and um, and you know, I I was aware that California in the '90s, when we grew up in California, was very different from the California that we see today. There was this unprecedented anti-immigrant hostility. You had uh, bipartisan statewide attacks on bilingual education on affirmative action, on social services for children of undocumented migrants. So Californians uh, uh, on in both political parties that decade when Stephen Miller was a kid kind of learned how to scapegoat that and and they and they and they chose to sort of blame all of their problems on immigrants. The the Republican governor Pete Wilson at the time was blaming all of the state's fiscal and crime problems on what he called the migrant invasion. There were advertisements running on television depicting migrant families coming across the border with this ominous narration saying they keep coming. Mm. And so to me, I, I was actually not surprised. I mean, I remember even as the daughter of a Mexican immigrant and a Puerto Rican mother, I remember internalizing a lot of that white supremacist rhetoric as a child. There was this real sense of shame associated with being Mexican and this desire to be perceived as white. I remember a lot of Mexican families used to advertise you know, they would they would go around bragging about their European ancestors. They would call themselves Hispanic rather than mm. Mexican. And so for me, it was not a surprise to learn that a young Stephen Miller growing up in that environment internalized that rhetoric as well. I mean, Stephen Miller truly is a product of the California of the 90s. The mm. difference is, you know, he continues to sound the same today as he did when he was 16. And for mm. me, that's why it's a case study in, in radicalization. It's what happens when someone is consumed by an ideology and uh, you know, and ends up the most powerful advisor in the White House. Yeah, the radicalization process isn't that different from becoming a, a moderate uh, Muslim to becoming an extremist there, or any other sort of uh, straying from moderation to to extremism. Well, one of the main tactics of white supremacists to to you know indoctrinate young people is is to pump them with false statistics that paint brown and black people as somehow more violent than white people. Mm. And Stephen Miller was exposed to those statistics as a young man. And, you know, it, it's just a classic case of, of radicalization in white supremacist ideas. He, he visited this website called American Renaissance, which is a white supremacist website that has, you know, they, they constantly pump out uh, anecdotes about brown and black people committing crimes. And it's meant to inspire a sense that, you know, that people of color are violent and, and pose an existential threat. And so 
David Horowitz tells me that, in fact, he thinks he's the one who introduced Stephen Miller to, to this website. Um, and, and then you later saw Stephen Miller actually taking articles from American Renaissance and other white nationalist websites, sharing them with writers at the right-wing blog, blog Breitbart and encouraging them to draw inspiration and, and stories from those platforms and, and radicalizing other people. You know, there was this editor named Katie McHugh who I spoke to at Breitbart who she was in her early 20s. She was feeling kind of lost and displaced and and here comes Stephen Miller sending her all of this white nationalist content and she became an extremely racist person um, and white supremacist for, for many years until she began to realize that this movement was associated with extreme violence and she began to move away from it. But it's, it's this common tactic that, you know, regardless of the type of extremism, it's, you know, using false information to, to get and people brainwashing, to be, yeah. Mm -hmm, so exactly. uh, you mentioned Breitbart. You know, Steve, he was close to Stephen Bannon. It appeared during the uh, the campaign. Like they seemed to be quite connected, basically because they were both sort of of the same, you know, white nationalist ideology. We all thought uh, that didn't last all the way into the uh, into the presidency because Bannon didn't survive very long. And there's a great passage in your book, and I don't have it in front of me, where you where you know after arriving at the White House, sort of Bannon, uh, Miller figures out that Bannon is not going to be there too long, starts aligning himself with Kushner and Ivanka, and then at some point um, stabs uh, uh, Bannon in the back as he's talking to uh, to Trump. Do you remember the line? I, I, I'll pull it up if not, but I, it's a good line. Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't remember the exact line, but he there were leaks coming out of the White House and Stephen Miller suggested to him that you know, he would be doing a lot better in the polls if only there weren't so many leaks coming out from Bannon. And oh, yeah, right. you know, Trump agrees with him. And shortly thereafter, you see Steve Bannon, who had previously been a mentor for Stephen Miller, um, axed from the White House. And Stephen Miller becomes Trump's favorite Steve. Yeah, you actually, that's a good line you had there. And it's also, you also said that he was referred to as, you know, if they had a key man contract in the White House, Stephen Miller would be the guy that Ivanka and Jared would have chosen for their key man. Exactly. Few people realize how key Stephen Miller was for Trump in 2016. I mean, people understand that he's one of the most powerful advisors in the White House right now, you know, in charge of the immigration policy, in charge of Trump's speeches. And in, in fact, also really shaping the re-election strategy. But but few, for me, one of the reasons that I'm one of the ways that I explain his ability to outlast people like Steve Bannon, like his former boss Jeff Sessions, who was the Attorney General, mm. um, and and pretty much outlasting, well, literally outlasting everybody outside of the president's own family, is because he was so key in 2016. You know, he he secured for Donald Trump, the Border Patrol and ICE union endorsements, which were critical, you know, the Border Patrol and ICE unions had never endorsed a presidential candidate before. These are the largest law enforcement agencies in the country and they gave, they gave Donald Trump real law and order credentials that he did not have before Stephen Miller came and, and got him those endorsements by working his connections from his time as, as communications director for Jeff Sessions. He also, 
you know, crafted his immigration policy. Trump's only real plan for immigration prior to Stephen Miller joining him was was the border wall. And immigration restrictionists kind of rolled their eyes at that. They knew that, you know, since the 90s, we have been building border barriers and all they've really done is push flows into the ports of entry, into the airports, underground, into the ocean and into the desert. Um, and it wasn't until Stephen Miller began to pull policies directly from think tanks funded by white supremacists who believe in population control for non-white people that restrictionists began to really take Trump seriously as somebody who is going to clamp down on immigration and that it really had nothing to do with law and order, but in fact had to do with demographics and trying to re-engineer the ethnic flows into this country to keep brown and black families out. And this, mm. this is why you see him primarily targeting um, you know, what they call ch chain migration, family-based family, family -based migration. Uh, you see them uh, targeting what they call catch and release, which is the policy of allowing asylum seekers to be released on parole while they await their court hearing. But anyway, so Stephen Miller early on proved himself to be a key player for Trump. And this is one of the reasons that he's lasted so long. I mean, tr Trump thinks that he won in 2016 because, in large part, because of Stephen Miller, because That's of the true. policy. Exactly, because of the policies and the rhetoric, you know, Stephen Miller is the one who would insert very gory graphic descriptions of, of alleged migrant crimes into Trump's speeches, which is another white supremacist tactic. Mm. And anyway, you know, this, this, this is Trump believes that this is why he won in 2016. And he believes that to win again in November, he needs to lean more and more heavily on Stephen Miller. And this is why you see him, you know, Initially, it was about demonizing immigrants. Now mm. it's about demonizing not just immigrants, but also Black Lives Matter protesters, anti-fascist mm. protesters. Um, and he describes them as agitators and anarchists who want to tear down this country. And that language comes straight from this white supremacist book that Stephen Miller read and promoted in 2015 that talks about the destruction of the white world by brown people and their anti-racist allies who are described as agitators and anarchists and mobs who want to destroy the country. It's just shocking when you think about that coming out of the White House. Um, he, he was also smart enough not to try to compete for the limelight uh, in the White House, in the, certainly in the beginning. They exactly. did throw him out once into the, the pit that is the Sunday morning sh uh, shows and Jake Tapper interviewed him uh, just after Bannon was uh, fired. It wasn't the best performance by a, by a White House person, but it also is the reason perhaps that he stays behind the scenes. Let's take a look at that and we'll come back and, and talk a little bit about uh, this interview segment. Here we go. I joined the campaign in January of 16, by the before the first ballot was cast right. in the Bannon, Iowa caucus. Bannon, Bannon helped you get that job. <laughs> the, no? Corey Lewandowski is the one who um, offered me the job in the Trump campaign. Mm -hmm. But just to finish... Bannon, wasn't, I, trying, Bannon just, wasn't helping you? Bannon didn't help you get that job on the campaign? I think the person who probably helped me most get the job on the campaign was probably Corey. Or the only person the who's called himself a genius Congress, in the last week is the president. But the, the, which because happens to be a true statement. Okay. A self-made billionaire who revolutionized reality TV and, and who I'm has sure changed the course of our politics. he's watching and he's happy that you said that. But, but you know, Jake, you can be, no, no, you can my, be condescending. I'm and, not being no, condescending. I'm trying no, to get to the point be, that Steve Bannon. You can be condescending. That was a snide remark. You're sure he's watching and he's happy. Let me tell you something. Why is your that network, you can, look, you can be as condescending as you want. It's part of your MO. But genius and a very stable genius at that. Do you think tweets like that help or hurt the cause that the president is stable and up for the job? Not only do I think they help it, 
But I think in the toxic environment that you've created here in CNN and cable... And you're being obsequious, no, you're being which, a factotum no, in order being, to please him, okay? No, and I think, you know, I've you know I, I think I've wasted enough of my you viewers' time. I, you know who Thank I you, care Stephen. About? As Republicans, hey, Jake, lawmakers call for Attorney General Jeff Sessions to resign. It's so interesting to watch him respond to, to, to Jake's questions because you can really see how he's on the offensive, which is such a, a very typical strategy for, uh, for the white nationalists and for the Trump administration to go after the media, to go after the interviewer, not to actually answer any questions uh, that are being uh, put to them directly. Um, it seems to be. It seems to have worked, actually. If you think about it, for for them, it seems to have worked for the last uh, three years. Although I think now it's it's beginning to wear very thin on the American public. Exactly. I mean, I had never until until you saw the demonization of journalists coming out of Trump's mouth. I, I had never felt unsafe doing my job before. Mm. Um, I mean, I, I had felt unsafe, you know, when I was a foreign correspondent in Mexico and I would I would go to certain places. Um, but um, but yeah, this is the first time that in the United States I have felt, you know, that I needed to, you know, at Trump rallies, for example, I, I don't always feel comfortable just advertising the fact that I'm I'm a journalist, and it's because mm. of this environment that's be been created. Um, and Stephen Miller, had, you know, obviously he he's taken advantage of that. He and one of the things that he was doing in that interview that speaks to why he's been able to last so long in the White House is he he's always very careful to cast himself as a devoted vehicle for mm. Donald Trump and for Donald Trump's agenda, which works out for Trump's ego. Other people like Steve Bannon, you know, who had his face on the cover of Time magazine and sort of cast him himself as the quote-unquote great manipulator and, and took a lot more credit for, for things than, than he probably deserved, Stephen Miller always did the opposite. He's, he's comfortable in Trump's shadow, you know, he never gets out ahead of Trump, and you see him constantly praising, la lavishing praise on, on Donald Trump anytime he speaks to the media. Um, and and I, I, I believe one of the reasons that he chose not to participate in, in, this, in my book and, and did not grant interviews with me is because you know it made him uncomfortable that there was an entire book being written about his influence which potentially would make donald trump uncomfortable mm. Mm, might might indeed um he's not going to be there hopefully for too much longer i mean let's hope that they don't get a second term um what would a second term though look like for stephen miller and the immigration policy in this country well, I think that if we saw a second term, you would absolutely see Stephen Miller continuing to have an outsized influence in the White House. And one of the things that they have not been able to accomplish in the immigration policy that I think we would absolutely see in a second term is an attack on birthright citizenship. So one of the things that these think tanks uh, funded by eugenicists who believe in population control for non-white people, one of the things that they want that they haven't been able to get out of Stephen Miller yet is, is an attack on that, you know, 14th Amendment right that if you are born in this country, you uh, get to become a citizen of this country. Um, they, they want to attack that. You know, Tr Donald Trump has talked about it. Stephen Miller has talked to Donald Trump about it. They they absolutely want to push for, for that to be revoked, it's, but they haven't pushed it this you know in this term because it's going to be extremely difficult for them but i think that it's it's absolutely going to be a priority if there is a second term as well as other you know efforts to completely shut down legal pathways into this country for people fleeing persecution and violence stephen miller has already succeeded in destroying the united states's reputation worldwide as a beacon of hope and refuge for people fleeing persecution and he is going to you know cement that if if there is a second term
It's a fantastic book and a good read, and I really recommend people read it. It's called Hatemonger, subtitled Stephen Miller, Donald Trump and the White Nationalist Agenda. Do you think he'll ever have to pay for what he's done? I mean, it seems to me like he's committed, I wouldn't call them crimes necessarily, but I, I, you know, potentially crimes um, against humanity even. Um, do you think he'll ever have to face up to that? Do you think he, he'll ever feel that he needs to face up to that? I would be very surprised if someone like Stephen Miller, who is an extremist, ever you know backed down or had a had a second thought. Uh, never in one of my in, in more than a hundred interviews that I conducted with people who knew Stephen Miller over the course of his life, never once did anyone mention Stephen Miller kind of you know questioning himself or, or wondering if what he was doing was right. So I would I would so actually amazing. be very um, I do know, you know, his own family, members of his own family, his aunt, she believes that Stephen Miller should be tried for crimes against humanity. Mo most of his family is just appalled at, at what he is doing, knowing that if these policies had been in place when their ancestors came to this country, that Stephen Miller would not even exist. So there, there's a lot of disgust and a lot of desire for him to be held accountable. But he's been very careful, you know, making phone calls instead of emails, not leaving a paper trail. Um, so, so it'll be, it'll be, you know, difficult to, to hold him accountable for a lot of these things. It seems so tricky that he's, you know, he's Jewish and, uh, so is Jared for me for that matter. Jews have tended to lean left. They very rarely have, have felt like they've leaned right, especially not gotten this close to the highest ranks of power in the United States. Um, so it's, it's not a, it's hard to reconcile that with Jewish history. Yeah, I mean, Stephen Miller's own grandmother spent her retirement compiling the family history so that her grandchildren, like Stephen Miller, would never forget the value of people who come to this country with nothing but the clothes on their back and speaking no English, and, and to record for them also the dangers of demonization. Uh, you know, there, his, Stephen Miller's great-grandparents came to this country fleeing nationalist agitators um, that resulted in violence, uh, massacres against the Jewish people. and. You know, she recorded these lessons for him, and and they're lessons that he completely ignored, and in fact attacked for a majority of his life. Maybe one day he'll learn them. Uh, Jean, thanks so much for joining us. It's been fascinating, and hopefully we'll get a chance to talk to you again in the future. Thanks very much. Thank you. Support Narrative's independent journalism at Patreon.com/forward/slash/narrative. And check out our podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to subscribe and download.